90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, great, great. It's been a pretty slow week for me, so I'm pretty excited to um, record the show. It's kind of the high point. I've been given some exams, <laughs> got a lot of angry students, so <laughs> I'm ready to pour some fun. Well, you know, we're recording this early because actually this week is not slow for me at all. <laughs> yeah, I am getting married this week, so we're recording this show a week early. So if there's any feedback, sorry, it'll be a week late before we get to address it in the show. Let's not get too excited about getting feedback. <laughs> <laughs> but just in case. So you've been doing exams and that kind of thing. Anything else interesting? Uh, no, it's nothing at all as interesting as your life has been with the wedding and with the um, awesome nerd thing you just went to, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this, uh, I went to the Open Hardware Summit, and we actually planned on doing this the week after I went, but then we wanted to talk about the Chile earthquake. Uh, right. So we're talking about it now, but I went to the Open Hardware Summit in Philadelphia, and it was amazing. <laughs> I'm sorry that if you followed me on Twitter, you probably mute me for that day. <laughs> Man, I almost did. That's for sure. Um, I'm going to say I don't have a lot to say about any of this stuff, but I'm going to throw in my non, non-technical non person comments where I can. <laughs> because some of these things that you went to, I mean, it, it sort of affects anyone that uses electronics at all. So I'm actually pretty excited to talk about it. Oh, Yeah. And also, I'll just throw in there, not uh, too much to talk about, but we did go to the Franklin Institute afterwards, you know, on the next day, which is mm -hmm. a really incredible museum in Philadelphia that you should check out if you're there. Lots of really nice demos and uh, education going on, including a two-story heart that you can climb around in. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, that's really cool. Um, hopefully, we'll talk about that on an upcoming demo and education show. Yeah, my favorite part of the heart was taking a photo, pointing up one of the arteries, and saying, <laughs> bacon goes here. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the Open Hardware Summit uh, started out uh, pretty early in the morning. Everybody lining up. You could get a paper badge for free, or you could get the new Parallax hackable electronic badge, which is what <laughs> everyone wanted. <laughs> Um, I will say that, you know, you sent this to me before you even went to the show because you were so excited about it. And I showed it to a couple of other of my gadgety friends and they were ridiculously excited about this thing. Yes. Um, it sort of reminded me of like the old feature on the iPhones where you could bump and tap information back and forth. Yeah, actually, it's pretty similar. Uh, this is a bare circuit board, though. So you are wearing... A circuit board with all the guts exposed on your chest. A little OLED screen that uh, shows your name or a logo. Open uh, hardware. Some, <laughs> yep. There's some touch sensors on it. Uh, the coolest thing is, like Shan just said, the design is open. The, the PCB files, even the silicon uh, design of the microprocessor on it is open. Wow. Uh, of the individual gates. The software is all open, so you can download it, you can hack it. Uh, there are some people that had written games for it by the end of the day. Oh. So you could download <laughs> the games to your badge and play them. That is spectacular. <laughs> Slightly counterproductive if you're the person whose talk you're listening to and people are in the audience playing games, but that's awesome. <laughs> and, you know, it's got a single battery on it that runs for, I think they said around 16 hours. Uh, and really, the coolest thing was, at the conference anyway, that you touched the open source hardware logo, and over infrared, it transmitted your contact information to the person that you were talking to and stored it on their badge so you could pull it off and get in contact with them after the conference. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, so there's the bump feature that, uh, <laughs> that reminded yeah. me of back in the day. Um, but that's actually really cool because, you know, I can't tell you how many scraps of paper I have with people's names written down on them after a conference so that's actually pretty neat yeah and there's so much that they didn't use on the badge i mean it has audio output capability there is an accelerometer wow. you could shake the badge and put it into accelerometer mode and the two rgb leds would change color based on the orientation and it showed the acceleration on the screen 
my god. Uh, <laughs> I I told myself I wasn't gonna make nerd comments this whole show, but that's that's pretty impressive. I can just see someone. See, this is where you need azimuth and not quadrant, right? I can see somebody shaking it two eighty, shaking it two eighty. It turned chartreuse. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, it was it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, the cool thing was the designer of the parallax uh, propeller, the microcontroller that's on it, Ken Gracie, was there, uh, you know, programming these things, working in the weeds, handing them out, because uh, they programmed it with your name and things right there for you. Oh, And awesome. he, on, on a Twitter the night before, there was a picture of all of his power strips trying to charge the 300 <laughs> plus batteries that would be needed for these the next day. In his hotel room. I hope the hotel was ready for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really awesome. Um, so, I mean, the whole point of this was to highlight this open source stuff. And I know you're a really, really huge proponent of open source in terms of, you know, code and hardware and reproducibility and all that jazz. Absolutely. I mean, I... I wouldn't say that I'm totally against patents. I do think a lot of times that they're used in pretty ludicrous ways. Uh, But I'm a very big fan of open source because open source does not mean that you can't make money from it. It doesn't mean that you can't make a viable commercial product. It just means that when somebody buys the product, they truly own the entire design and they can modify it however they wish because you're providing them with all the information. There's no reverse engineering that has to go on. And And in science, open source means open software, open data, so people can reproduce your work, because that's really important. Right, exactly. As we've talked about on this show, you know, there are a lot of studies that have been shown to be, you know, irreproducible, which is (laughs) not what you want in science. But just like we did a couple of weeks ago, uh, what is geoscience? What can it do for you? I mean, even if you're not interested in actually you know, building these electronics or writing this code, this is actually pretty important. I mean, just this last week, the whole Volkswagen software issue has come up where Volkswagen wrote something into their software so that their cars had, you know, worse emission control when they were running, but the software could tell when they were being tested, and then they'd turn on all their emissions controls when it was being tested. And that was a software thing, you know, buried deep in this millions of lines of code. And so that's why open source code might be something that should be required for things like your car. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that mistake's going to cost Volkswagen right now an estimated $18 billion to correct. Yes, they had, um, they had the guy who's starting the class action lawsuit against them and he's saying you know some people might want their entire money back for this car because they bought it because it was sold as this clean emitting diesel engine and so and just like also staying on the car theme um the chrysler jeep that got hacked while somebody was driving it you know so yeah (laughs) being able to apply the brakes through the entertainment system uh yes (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So this isn't just an important topic for you code monkeys. It's important for everyone to sort of know where the stuff is coming from. And even if you don't know how to manipulate it, but have somebody out there checking it because, you know, somebody is out there checking. And I think that's really important. So it's something that we should keep talking about for sure. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's this idea. uh, I know automakers and even as much as I love John Deere tractors, uh, being from Arkansas, <laughs> even John Deere was trying to do this. And it's it's not an okay thing saying you're buying the tractor or you're buying the car, but you do not own the code that's running on it. You do not own the code running in the engine control module. Yep. We own that. And if you mess with it, then you messed with our property and we're going to come after you. Oh. That's just not, that's not okay. Exactly. And the, the car industry, I mean, and I sort of include, you know, John Deere sort of including that is such a big deal with their patents and stuff. You know, my husband's a mechanic and he runs into this all the time. People wanting him to get into the software and like bypass the codes. And it winds up doing all kinds of crazy stuff, voiding warranties and all kinds of things that have, you know, an immediate consequence to the consumer. And so, something that needs to be talked about on the national stage a lot more and i think it will be with this volkswagen debacle that's happening 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's going to tie into some of the talks. So I'm not going to go through all the talks <laughs> that were given there. There were a lot of really great ones. But I wanted to hit a few of the high points. <laughs> I can tell from your notes you're very excited about <laughs> what you did at this conference. <laughs> oh, yes. There was a lot of notes. And if you look at the time that they were typed in, it was pretty quick. Uh, <laughs> well, which one was your favorite one? Well, you know, the first talk, I can't, I can't name a favorite because they were all really good. Um, but the morning keynote was by Anne-Marie Thomas, and she's at University of St. Thomas, and it was called Making Makers. And I'll put a link to her website in the show notes. Uh, this was a really fascinating talk, and one of the big quotes out of it uh, was, we want our kids to know how to do dangerous things safely. And this is referencing people saying, you know, oh, you shouldn't be teaching electronics or do-it-at-home science, chemistry, that kind of thing, mm. because it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which just is quashing kids, you know, whole love of science, right? <laughs> right. So you need to, you know, inspire people and encourage them to do things. And she had a lot of really good points, but one was change your vocabulary, when you're talking to people or even, you know, your self-talk, saying things like, is, you know, don't say the world is a a scary place or something like that. You know, say the world is an amazing place to the the kids when you're working with them. Mm -hmm. Just very subtle changes like that can have a huge impact. Oh, it's absolutely true. And anyone that's done anything with a kid out in the wild probably already knows that because I know, you know, I've had talks about bears with my son because we camp in places where there are bears. And yes, it is scary, but, you know, as long as you have that conversation on a level that's not terrifying, and you can, then that's that's great. And he loves to tell kids about bears now. <laughs> and I know that's sort of <laughs> it's sort of off the topic, but it's so true, you know, just that slight switch. And I've looked at her website, and it's super cool. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the kind of final message that she had was optimism has to be active, not passive, when you're teaching, when you're learning, when you're working with people trying to make makers. Yeah, that's that was a really cool takeaway um, message, I thought. I think that's really neat because it's so true. Yeah, and, well, I'm actually going to follow up with her on one of these things that she said. Uh, she was discussing one of their projects, which was using Plato. Uh, that was conductive and insulative to build circuits with kids. That's awesome. And yeah, so she's describing this process. And she said, you know, that made for some interesting promotion and tenure committee meetings. (laughs) God, I hope she took it in there (laughs) for a demo. (laughs) I mean, and so that's something that I definitely want to talk about because Sometime in the near future, promotion and tenure will be something that I'm thinking a lot about (laughs) (laughs) and how to to balance research publications with being uh, open with all of your products. Uh, Yep, exactly. Um, And sometimes the academic uh, environment isn't conducive for that either, so... There's another great talk right after this by Ben Ludek-Mills, also on education. Uh, Not going to go too much into that just for the sake of time. But all of these talks are going to be up uh, here probably about the time the show comes out. If they are, I will put a link in where you can watch them online. Uh, you, uh, so I definitely encourage you to go and watch these that we're talking about. You would hope that an open source conference would have would have that up. That's awesome. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, so let's see. Then there were a few talks that were on uh, kind of the business side of open source hardware that were very interesting. Uh, then... One of our favorite topics that we keep coming back to, space. <laughs> it's really big and awesome. <laughs> yes. Uh, first, there was a talk by Jason Kessler and John Rustin on Ultrascope. And I've heard about this a few months ago, saw one of the early prototypes online, and it has come a long way since what I saw. This looks really awesome. Um, I will say I spent a lot of time on their website that is linked in the show notes and it looks so cool and it makes me yeah so this is a (laughs) oh yeah it's it's a 3d printed and laser cut uh telescope that's relatively easily assemblable by anybody uh with some 
basic tools or things that are found at local maker spaces or your you know local university. And the goal is to have a telescope that uses your smartphone as the camera and processor and enables you to hunt for meteors and collect data on them. This is an awesome citizen science thing. It reminds me of SETI. You know, SETI was the cool thing to have, like, running on the background of your computer, you know, 15 years ago. And this is what right. I immediately thought of when I went to this website. Yeah, and, I mean, it's, it has an Arduino and an Arduino shield that lets your phone control the telescope, move it around, uh, talks to the phone to tell it when to take data and all that. And the only disadvantage I can think of is, well, your phone's outside for, you know, those six hours that data is being collected. But, you know, that's probably okay because you might be asleep. Yes. And also, if you have a, you know, Samsung that is waterproof like I do, you don't have to worry about anything else. <laughs> but yep. just get that True. shameless plug in. <laughs> um, yeah, that was really cool. Um, that was my favorite sort of one of the talks that you had up here. So I'll be excited to go watch that um, if they make the talks available. Yeah, and that's part of the Open Space Agency, which is as awesome as it sounds. Yes, <laughs> yes it is. <laughs> but there was more I, about that stuff at this conference, right? It wasn't just this telescope one. No, it wasn't just the telescope. There is an organization that I had actually recently heard of called Mach 30, and their president, Jay Simmons, got up and gave a talk that I was really pretty jaw-dropped by parts of it. Uh, Mach 30 is an open-source space program as well. So uh, that's He has crazy. a degree, an advanced degree in rocket physics, space flight, and so it's literally open-source rocket science. <laughs> Which seems crazy. Yes, and... He has realized, and well, their group has realized, that there are some deficiencies in open source tools right now in terms of CAD and modeling. Mm -hmm. And I've been coming up against this myself on a project I'm working on that's going to be open sourced, where I want to use really good 3D CAD tools, but unfortunately, the open source alternatives don't give me all the features I need. So I'm using a piece of software that the license costs thousands of dollars per year. Ah, yeah, okay. I can open source the files when I'm done, but they're not incredibly easy for other people to modify, which is an issue. Right. Uh, so they've been working on this project called the Yavin, which is a cold gas thruster, uh, the simplest <laughs> rocket engine there is. There's no ignition. It's literally just take compressed gas and psh, bleed it <laughs> off to get thrust. Mm -hmm. uh, and they've been developing this tool chain using this as a test bed. So the idea is they've made this modeling environment where you can parametrically say, I need this much thrust or whatever, uh, do your calculations, and then the modeling is linked directly into the CAD tool. So you can go back and change one of the parameters where you run the model. It changes the parameters in your CAD, redesigns the part. It's all linked. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and what I was most excited about was it's based with Python and Jupyter Notebooks. <laughs> Of course you were excited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the upside of that is that sounds like you're cutting out a lot of, you know, you can sort of move the science along faster. Is that true? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think you can, uh, you can iterate much more quickly right. this way. You don't have mm -hmm. to go back, do some modeling. Okay, I'm going to change my CAD. Okay, well, that didn't give me quite what I wanted. I'm going to go back, do some more modeling. You can do the modeling in CAD in a very integrated way. Parametric CAD is really the future. I have played with it some, and it's amazing. You can design something and just have variables to say, like, how big is it or what screw size are you using? Mm -hmm. And then you go and change that one variable, recompile, and you get a new CAD drawing of a new part. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Um, that sounds incredibly useful. Uh, yes. So that was, that, that were the two space talks and they were really great. Uh, so check out Mach 30 and the Open Space Agency. Like I said, well, they'll be linked in the show notes. But then came some talks on what we do for our day jobs, <laughs> science. Not that space isn't science, but... 
True. <laughs> but um, now this one I'm super th- these excited were... about because, yeah, saving time and money is you know you want to save as much of it as you can, especially in you know a publicly funded university setting. So. Yeah, and you know it's it's true that every lab you go into, there's outdated equipment sitting around. <laughs> Because it's unsupported, or you can't get manuals for it, or it's the only thing that does this particular analysis that you need. So you're running a computer with Windows 95. (laughs) Hey, are you describing my lab? (laughs) (laughs) When something goes wrong with it, who knows what you're going to do, right? Oh, exactly. Um, Before the show, the last couple of weeks, I've been asking you questions about our magnetometer. Because it's 20-something years old, and it's not supported, really, and we're having issues with it, and it's awful. Because <laughs> here's this hundreds oh. of thousands of dollars machine that's just sitting there, and since I don't know how to talk to it with an Arduino, you know, it just sits there. But open source might be able to help that? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> yeah, so there is... Uh... A wonderful, well, first there were some science uh, articles that came out about it, and then uh, a book by Joshua Pierce who gave a talk, and he showed how open source hardware and science can save an absolute bundle. Uh, he was one of the original 3D printing things for your lab people, uh, okay. and his book is called Open Source Lab, How to Build Your Open Hardware and Reduce Research Costs. It's a really nice, uh, I've got the hardback version here that mostly focuses on 3D printing in the laboratory. Okay. So they had this problem of some kind of a filter wheel for things they were doing. It switched different filters in and out for some kind of analysis, optical filters. Mm -hmm. And they were incredibly expensive because not many people need them. They're just a fancy piece of plastic, but they were a few thousand dollars, and the factory had a lead time of months because they made them on demand. Wow. Okay. And it's because, like everything in our, you know, in very specific science fields, there's a need for 20 of them in the world, maybe. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So he ended up hiring a high school student, taught this student parametric CAD, what I was just describing. And at the end of the summer, there is a parametric CAD model. They could 3D print these filter wheels for a few dollars huh. in plastic. Huh. <gasps> and, you know, one of the quotes he said was, we didn't solve our problem. We didn't solve the six filter problem. Yeah. We solved okay. all filter wheel problems for all time. Yep. Because it's parametric. Exactly. So you put in the size. You put in the number of filters that you want. You put in all of these variables, hit compile, and it's ready to print. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, and that's, you know, he said tens of millions of dollars are being wasted trying to push science forward with proprietary equipment. Mm-hmm. Tens of millions. That might, that might even be an understatement, actually. <laughs> Uh, yes, absolutely. Especially, I mean, I I think in biology this happens a lot, but it happens more than people appreciate in geoscience. Yes, yes, it absolutely does. I mean, we had a professor that until, I'm not even going to say recent memory, it had to have been in the last year, was still using Apple IIEs to run his equipment. Wow. <laughs> Had a big stack of them. Every time he found one, he'd buy one, you know, and he had a big stack of them back in the back because the upgrade was so prohibitively expensive. So he just worked with what he had because the equipment still ran, but it was too expensive to upgrade. So. Well, and and that's the beautiful thing about open source. You know, now there is an open source 3D printable Raman spectrometer. <laughs> uh Incredible. And the beauty of it is there are continually improvements being made. Right. But you can upgrade the equipment yourself for very little cost generally. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be support as long as the community is working with it. Right. So it's not at as big of a risk of getting abandoned 
as it is from a big company that decides, well, this this market sector isn't really doing that much for us. Which is interesting because I would think that companies would argue that, that they would argue that, you know, you shouldn't open source it because, you know, it's just going to sit out there and no one will care, which is exactly the opposite probably of what's going to happen because there's always a tinkerer somewhere that wants to solve a problem, is looking to solve a problem. And if you have all your stuff out there, who knows, you know, what high school kid is going to solve your million-dollar equipment problem because he's got access to how it works. You know, that's shouldn't that be what science is, really? Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, you know, when the company decides to move up to the next model, they're going to leave your model in the dust. Yeah. Yes, yes, with no no one to help you through because they don't want you to use it anymore. They want you to upgrade. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's where open source really shines through, and you have lots of brains that are using the equipment every day, not on test samples in a laboratory, but on real samples and having real struggles with the equipment that are working on Right, exactly. And think of how much you could branch out too because so many, and I mean... At small schools, so many scientists are probably hamstrung by the lack of funding, and so they can't do the experiments that they want to do because there's just no way to obtain the funds to go through the one company in the Czech Republic that makes this one part, you know? <laughs> right. Which, I mean, I say that because most of our stuff comes from there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really weird. Well, and, you know, it's it's really random, what happens uh, several years ago, I wrote a driver for a pressure sensor, just a run-of-the-mill, could use as barometric pressure, could use as altitude sensor. Uh, mm-hmm. Only, I don't know, probably a year or two later to go back to that GitHub repository because I needed to use that sensor again to see that it had been forked and rolled into somebody's near space balloon. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh so open source really does, I mean, I, I don't advertise a lot of my projects because they're very specific. Right. But every now and then somebody finds it on GitHub and I get an email from someone saying, hey, you know, I'm using this in, uh, you know, this project and thought you'd like to know. But I have a, a very permissive license on all of my projects mm-hmm. that says, you know, you can use this, you can make money with it, you can do whatever you need to. It just needs to retain this license notice in the author. That's really cool. That's neat. Uh, so there's another book that I wanted to mention, actually, that was talked about a lot at the conference. It's a relatively new book, and I have it sitting on my desk in front of me, about half finished right mm-hmm. now, called Building Open Source Hardware, DIY Manufacturing for Hackers and Makers by Alicia Gibb. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really a compilation of a lot of different authors that talks about all kinds of things involved from licensing to manufacturing, uh, legal things that you should know <laughs> when you're using other people's content. Uh-huh. It's a really great book if you want to get into open source. Um, I see it bundled here on Amazon when I looked up the open source lab um, book as well. Um, so apparently lots of people are, <laughs> are also looking at that. Um, and I, I would think that the legal part of this makes a lot of, you know, probably universities, but a lot of people nervous Right. I mean, it seems cool because it seems like it's sort of breaking away from our litigious society, this open source stuff. But I'm imagining at the conference, they probably address this a little bit, huh? Yeah. And you do have to be careful with your IP department. Right. At at your university. Make sure you talk to them. Know what's going on. Uh, (laughs) There was a talk by some folks that work for Autodesk, the makers of AutoCAD. Mm Mm-hmm. They are getting ready to release a 3D resin printer that is going to be entirely open source, including the formula for the resin, which, you know, when you sell a 3D printer that does resin printing, you make a lot of money on the resin. Uh, It's a consumable. And that has actually already been released. And there was a slide that was an email that one of the engineers, they were literally doing this in a broom closet. Uh, (laughs) got from legal 
And the email said, Eric, please do not open source anything further until you discuss it in advance with legal. As I mentioned to you, when you open source the resin, there are a number of potential product liability implications. (laughs) That's always a scary email to get. (laughs) Yes. So that is something you have to think about. What kind of license you put on things, how you release it, and is it something that's capable of harming people? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But just like you said, you know, there are avenues to where you can still, you know, cover your butt and also still make money just because the stuff is open source, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and there are some great examples of companies that are very successful, but most of their products are open source completely. That's kind of awesome. Another thing that got hit a lot during the science session was version controlling. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I have not got on that soapbox very much on this show. That's an entirely another show. I've uh, I've heard a lot of it outside of this show, though. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Version control is fantastic. Dropbox is not version control. <laughs> That's all we'll say. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, n- neither is naming your files. First one, second one, third one. Um, oh, I wasn't going to bring it up. Um, but yeah, yeah. final, final. <laughs> um, but there is also a talk by Bruce Boys that blew a lot of us away that said, you know, the Wright brothers were really kind of awful people. <laughs> okay. Uh, you should definitely look this talk up uh, when it's released. What happened was the Wright brothers were arguably not the first in powered flight. Right. Uh, You know, there's been some debate around that for a while. But the Wright brothers got a patent that was so general, and this is what I don't like about patents, that basically gave them claim to anything that flew by any means, whether it used their wing warping technique or not. Wow. So they forbade other people from making flying machines. And when people from other countries who had had no way of knowing anything about their research would bring airplanes in for flying exhibitions, mm-hmm. which were popular at the time. They would, get hit. they would meet them at the dock and charge them a royalty that was equivalent to about the cost of a house. Oh, now. my gosh. Uh, yeah, that's... They fought viciously to keep people from doing anything with the design, anything from improving it and sharing it they fought against. That is pretty awful. Yeah, and, you know, he said that he thinks the aviation industry was set back 10, maybe 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just because anytime somebody tried to have any kind of improvement, it was immediately legally kiboshed. I mean, people want to talk about the oppression caused by the church, you know, <laughs> in Galileo's <laughs> time. But, wow, same sort of thing, it sounds yeah. like. Hmm. Well, and the Wright Flyer is right now on loan to the Smithsonian, you know, right. kind of an indefinite right. loan. Uh, but it came with the stipulation that there was to be no investigation to any claims that anyone other than the Wright brothers were first in flight. And if they investigated any of those claims, the Wright estate would reclaim the flyer. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about having your, oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. That's as bad as corporations sponsoring research and then demanding a certain outcome. It sounds just like that. Yeah, exactly. So that was that was a little bit of a shocker. Um, There were some more uplifting talks, (laughs) like some folks that were doing uh, open prosthetics. That sounded really making new kinds of sockets. Yeah, Um, making things for people to be able to do rock climbing comfortably without having to have any implants that's awesome yeah no that was that was a really great one uh open fluid chemistry and this was this is more on the biology side so i don't understand it (laughs) i was gonna ask you because i don't understand the sentence yeah (laughs) um basically they were doing things with drops of blood mixing them with other chemicals to test whether you had some disease oh okay Uh, so you could do 
kind of an at-home test would be the Ooh. idea. But in the lab, they currently do these, and they're rather expensive. They have developed some technology that lets you print with silver ink on an inkjet printer. Uh, wow. These cards, and then it goes onto an Arduino shield. Well, you put some uh, cellophane wrap over it. And by boosting uh, the power to a high voltage but low current, just using the electric field, you can move drops around on this thing. And so you can mix the blood with other chemicals and do your test all on an open source Arduino platform with printed electrodes. Wow. Wow. And I thought WebMD was a cool thing. <laughs> I could get I could yeah, give myself all kinds of diseases if I could do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could test yourself and that's the idea. Right now it's in the lab. And there are several systems uh, that are completely open that are being actively developed by labs and used in research every day. But the goal would be that you can have these in some kind of a meter in your house and do some diagnosis early on. Uh, that is really cool stuff. And, you know. Yeah, so biology is really pushing open source. I've seen a lot of publications where biologists are pushing for this hard. Because their equipment's so expensive and they have so many consumables. Yes, yes, virtually the whole thing is a consumable. Right. Whereas for geology, you know, we buy an instrument, but then we just run rocks through it. Hey, we consume a lot of liquid helium cooled to four degrees Kelvin. That's expensive. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they make a heliumless magnetometer now, so if only we could upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I don't have a half million dollars laying around, but anyone that wants to support that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, and then the the next thing, kind of the last thing I wanted to bring up from the conference was the open hardware certification, which I'm pretty excited about. Okay. This is a way, you know, people say for a lot of projects, this is open source. Right. And there's a lot of argument over what that means. So whether so, you can, other people can use it or, you know, or just look at it, is that the sort of thing that is is being argued? Well, yeah, or from a more fundamentalist standpoint of, well, almost no microchips are open source. I'm not going to say none because there are a mm -hmm. few. But the, the processor, the Intel inside your laptop is not open source. Okay. So... Mm -hmm. Let's say you designed an open source laptop that used an Intel chip. All of your design is open, but you used a chip that's not. Okay. Is that still an open source design? Yeah. Gotcha. Or you use software that's not open source to design your product. Is your product open source? Gotcha. Well, this was an attempt to formalize that a little bit and set out some guidelines for minimum reproducibility requirements. Uh, this is a self-certification process. So there's a checklist. You go through it. And if you comply with the checklist, then you can officially use the open source hardware seal and say that your project is open. Okay. And, you know, you might say, well, how do we just keep people from using that? Yes. <laughs> well, it's got it's got some teeth. Uh, by identifying your product as open, you are agreeing that you will deal with penalties that the Open Source Hardware Foundation, or OSHWA, can level against you if your project is not. Ah, okay. So that's lending some credence to this self-test, right? Right. And, you know, the idea would be, well, initially they would say, hey, we noticed that this project is listed as open source, and here are some things that are not. Would you please address this or remove the listing? Oh, okay. Cool. And eventually it can get up to fines, uh, some of them sizable. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea is know what projects are truly reproducible, and you register it with them so there's a large community list of what true open hardware is out there. So this is just a really great idea. I'm very excited to take some of my projects through the open source certification process and put the logo on them. I plan on doing that very mm -hmm. soon. That's, that's really neat. That's nice that there's, you know, something 
something behind it. I think it makes it easier to say that this is a legitimate, a legitimate movement when you have that kind of, yeah. you know, somebody checking up on it. Oh yeah, and if if you like open source hardware, like the idea of open source hardware, uh, check out oshwaoshwa.org for the Open Source Hardware Association. They have memberships for students that are relatively cheap. Their memberships for non-students are still relatively cheap. Uh, you should become a member and help support them. It's a really great organization that's fighting pretty hard to make sure that open source lives on and promote it. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's some backing from some pretty significant companies. Uh, SparkFun Electronics, a big player in the do-it-yourself electronics movement, uh, almost all of their projects are open source. Uh, but people like Google were sponsoring this. Wow. Uh, this whole conference. Yeah, so it's you know, Google, Make, Oculus Rift, Red Hat Linux, uh, a lot of the other maker and 3D printer companies were out there. Uh, DigiKey, some of the big parts suppliers. I feel like... Uh, so it's getting a lot of traction. I feel like Linux is the hipster in the room. Like, we did this before. It was cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that sounds really neat. Um, I will be excited to see these talks when they get put up because some of them sound pretty. Yeah, useful. and like we said earlier, I really live and breathe this stuff. <laughs> I I love the idea of open source. I love everything about the idea of open source. Uh, as much as you can, there are some restrictions, especially if you're working on anything that could potentially be used as missile guidance. Oh. You are limited under ITAR as to what you can release. Wow. Hmm. I think I'm good. I don't think I'll be doing that. So. <laughs> um, well, even, I mean, I've been dealing with some sensors uh, that are very precise navigation sensors for a geophysical project. Uh, but they are ITAR controlled because they could be used to guide a missile, even though I'm using them to monitor wow. the Wow. That's crazy. Right. So <laughs> so you do have to be a little bit careful there. Yes. Uh, yeah, big time. <laughs> That's where your legal department at your university or company yeah, becomes your, uh, should be yes, consulted. Exactly. You don't want to get that email. <laughs> uh, otherwise, you have the government very upset. Uh, yeah. Federalis at your door. Not a good thing. <laughs> well uh, did you have any other comments about this before we move on to uh, everybody's favorite Uh, segment nope no more comments on the nerd conference um (laughs) i will say that you know (laughs) we we obviously talk about this a lot not on the show but you and i have talked about it a lot um because i know you're so such a proponent of it and i think about it a lot when um, you know, we're working with software or we're talking to people about consuming one of their products and it just seems like that there's a place for this and I hope that this movement doesn't really lose steam, you know, because it just, collaboration is at the very heart of science and it seems like this makes collaboration so much easier and more available to everybody, not just the rich kids get a seat at the table. So I think it's really neat. And, you know, I can't wait to read right. about the conference, so. Yeah, I mean, our goal is to advance science, exactly. right? Yes, that's what it should be, not just to make money, so. Right. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll keep talking about this um, as the years roll on. And just like you said, a lot of this stuff is sort of moving ultra fast. So I'm sure we'll have a bunch of updates about what's happening in that community. Oh, Absolutely. But I think that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment. Yay. Fun Paper Friday. I really got to find the cowbell. <laughs> it just it yeah, you lends do. its own credence to Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> <laughs> so now this Fun Paper got me pretty excited because it talked about Reynolds numbers, and I love fluid dynamics. <laughs> <laughs> this is a wonderful little paper that I found. It's called Drag Moderation by the melting of an ice con- or an ice surface in contact with water. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's it sounds thrilling. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds pretty well, not too dry because it's about ice and water. But um, <laughs> this was actually pretty awesome. Um, I read the paper before I read the Gizmodo article, so it was kind of funny to see it boiled down into ice melting and whiskey. But you know. 
Yeah, and you know the Gizmodo article on this actually has some technical inaccuracies. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it is better to read the paper. There are a few things said in that article that are just yes. wrong. Uh, <laughs> but it's got a link to a cool but video. what it. <laughs> It does have the link to the video, and what this boils down to is if you take two uh, balls of equal mass, one made out of something, I think they use steel and tungsten carbide, if I remember right, Uh, you dip one in a mold and make an ice shell on the outside of it, and the other one is the same size and same weight, but it's just Just plain metal, and you drop them both, the ice one falls significantly faster. And so we're dropping them in Which water, is weird. to be, to be clear about the I, experiment here. Yes. So you drop them in big water tanks at the same time, and that ice one does move a lot faster than just the solid of the same mass, which is counterintuitive, really. And it has to do with this thing called the drag coefficient. Right, and I mean it's really counterintuitive because ice right. floats. <laughs> So <laughs> and, uh, and that was funny because they said, you know, they couldn't do this experiment with just ice balls because, yeah, they just float. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> obviously this the whole point, you know, is to talk about, you know, glaciers moving or icebergs in water is sort of the real world application to this physics. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was kind of thinking, uh, what about the Pycrete ships? <laughs> Because, you know, ships uh, made out of ice, which were a thing uh, called Pycrete, I'll put a link in the show notes, uh, probably also benefited Uh, from this. Yeah, exactly. Um, So it's really neat that they they use these. The video really sort of sums it up quite well, actually, um, because they use dye to sort of demonstrate, well, to visualize dye in a high-speed camera, to visualize... The turbulence, the Reynolds number, is just a dimensionless number that you use basically to determine whether you have laminar or turbulent flow. And so they're basically measuring the turbulence behind these two balls as they drop through the water and determining this drag coefficient. Right. And for the steel ball, the flow separates from the ball or becomes turbulent, not laminar right around the equator. But for the ice-covered ball, it moves significantly aft of the equator and reduces the drag. Uh, Pretty wild. And actually, uh, they say that they think this is because the ice is melting and adding some mass. Right, exactly. So because of that layer of melt that's around it and the interaction with that is what changes that drag coefficient which isn't something that people had well it's not what they initially thought right and it's not really it says there's a great sentence in here about how difficult here we go um (laughs) drag on bluff bodies integrating mass transfer and slip effect remains a formidable theoretical and computational challenge (laughs) (laughs) yes so trying to actually get get an empirical handle on this because the the effect is significant um but trying to get an empirical handle on it is quite difficult and you know they said that the mechanism was under debate because they had even observed uh, similar things for using the laden frost effect so a totally different phase transformation right and they didn't know what uh what things transferred and it turns out not right. much yeah exactly um this seems it's kind of a slog to get through um, the paper, but it seems like this is this is a pretty big deal because, just like they said, this is pretty difficult to observe this stuff. And, you know, the real-world applications, like why do we care about this sort of physics? And um, so they say you can reproduce these effects in other systems involving solid phase melting, you know, or dissolution in a surrounding liquid phase, which is really hard to look at, but... Just like we said, those effects are actually quite large. I mean, these are quite big um, coefficient differences between these two, you know, the steel ball and then the steel ball with ice and a liquid layer around it. Yeah, and, you know, they said that their hypothesis was that the melting rate was proportional to the the drag reduction. And how are we going to test this? 
well, they came up with a beautifully elegant test, I thought. I know you love high-speed cameras. It seems like all these always have to do with <laughs> high-speed well, cameras. I, I do love high-speed <laughs> cameras, but they said, well, if we think that the ice melting is what's controlling the drag reduction, we're just going to drop the ball through a tank that is close to freezing so that the melting rate is 20 times less than it is normally. And lo and behold, the drag reduction uh, didn't really happen. It was very similar to just the plain metal sphere right. falling. And then when they warmed the tank back up again, it fell right. faster. Yep. And so that has implications for warming oceans and the interaction of our big ice that's locked up, you know, a lot of the water on Earth, the interactions there as you change the temperature of the water that the ice is living in, essentially. Yeah. So go check out the video that's linked in the show notes. Uh, the paper is also linked. And then uh, get some steel ball bearings, cover <laughs> them in ice, and start dropping them into your uh, very tall beer exactly. glasses. <laughs> get your high-speed camera ready. <laughs> Run by your Arduino. <laughs> well, you know, the uh, a whole other show topic, but the uh, the camera on iPhones is relatively impressive right now for doing high-speed work for citizens. Uh, yeah, that is true. Um, I think I was looking at the specs on the new Samsung, and we're talking like 30 megapixels or something. Ten years ago, that's ridiculous. But, yep. <laughs> yeah, and you know, sixty to one hundred and twenty frames per second is nothing to uh, yep, to shrug exactly. at. Exactly. So you don't need a thousand frames a second to do this. <laughs> so you should go drop things in glasses of water and film it, <laughs> and let us know what happens, or just send us your suggestions for more fun papers. We have a few on the list that we. Uh, promise you too very soon we haven't forgot about your suggestions <laughs> no uh, we are strategically placing them um <laughs> yes um, so shannon how could they do that well you can send us your videos of ball bearings dropping in beer at show at don't panic geocast.com uh, you can always find us on the web don't panic geocast.com and on twitter john is at geo underscore lehman i am at shannon doolin and we are at don't panic geo and until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.